Hello and welcome to the Westminster Institute. I'm Robert Riley, its director. Today, we're particularly delighted to welcome a guest from Lebanon, Dr. Bassem Sheb, who uh, served in the Lebanese parliament from 2005 to 2018. During his tenure, he was a member of Defense and Economics and Human Rights Committees addressing important challenges such as defense, economic policy, and human rights. He was also a member of the Parliamentary Network of the World Bank and International Monetary Fund, as well as the Congressional U.S.-Lebanon Friendship Caucus. Additionally, Dr. Shab was part of the Lebanese parliamentary delegation that visited Norway to gather more information about oil and gas exploration and legislation. He is a founding member of the Euro-Asian Bridge Society of Cardiac Surgeons, as well as that of the Lebanese Association for Biosafety, Biosecurity, and Bioethics. He studied at the American University of Beirut, where he received an MD in 1982 with distinction. Today, he is joining me to discuss energy issues in the Eastern Mediterranean and Lebanon in the wake of the war in Ukraine, or to put the issue more provocatively, will the war in Ukraine be a turning point for the East Mediterranean? Welcome, Dr. Chab. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. The war in Ukraine and Russia's invasion of Ukraine is not uh, in the top news here in, in Lebanon and other parts of the Middle East. But in fact, the, uh, the effects of uh, the conflict in Ukraine uh, has already affected the Middle East uh, in energy and in politics. And the energy sector in particular has, has had a major impact uh, reflection, inflection point, if you wish. Uh, I was very much taken by the uh, title of uh, Chancellor Scholz's piece in uh, Foreign Affairs, in that it is uh, a a global uh, point of inflection. And indeed, it is a point of inflection for uh, uh, the Levant, especially on the issue of gas. Prior to the war in Ukraine, it was well known that the Eastern Mediterranean had considerable quantities of hydrocarbons and gas. And uh, we know that uh, gas was discovered in Israel uh, more than 10 years ago, uh, Egypt uh, six years ago. The problem with gas in the Mediterranean was that it was too expensive. It was deep waters. And there was no way to export the gas. There were no pipes. The only pipe uh, available was the Arab pipeline that goes from Israel uh, to Egypt, to Jordan and Syria. And that was mainly affected by uh, uh, security issues. And so the prospects of gas uh, from the East Med finding uh, a market at a reasonable price uh, was very, very low. And so therefore there was no interest. And we've noted that the Israelis who discovered gas uh, more than 10 years ago had difficulty exporting their gas. 
their two main customers until now, until the war in Ukraine, have been Egypt and Jordan. Uh, Cyprus, which also discovered gas almost 10 years ago, found it uneconomical to produce. The only way to export gas had been through two plants in Egypt, uh, two liquefaction plants. And when that was taken into consideration, that gas was in no way competitive with cheap uh, liquefied natural gas from Qatar, not to mention pipe gas uh, from Russia to other parts of Europe. The interest in the East Mediterranean began to be fair before the war in Ukraine, as if it was anticipating a, a, an event of sorts. Uh, three years ago, there was a, uh, a consortium that met in Cairo and, and uh, ended with the conclusion of what's the so-called East Med Energy Forum. Unfortunately, this forum did not include Lebanon. Lebanon was invited. But because Lebanon was in a state of war with Israel, Lebanon decided not to attend. There was this conviction among uh, governments and uh, companies that the only way that gas would be profitable to export would be through cooperation in the Eastern Mediterranean. And because of uh, Israel being a member of the East, Energy, uh, East Mediterranean Energy Consortium, uh, Lebanon was uh, kept out. So in Lebanon, we've had a, a hiatus of a wasted time of at least 15 years uh, in terms of uh, getting uh, contracts and, and drilling. Also, geopolitical issues were a major factor. Uh, for example, when Lebanon uh, put uh, uh, its uh, blocks out on the market, we had only one offer, one reasonable offer, actually, from Total, Eni, and Novatec, Russian company. And uh, when the other blocks were put on the market, there were no offerings. So geopolitical risk in the Mediterranean was also a, a major issue, at least uh, for Lebanon. And then Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, and uh, the price of gas went up, and the gas that was not very profitable suddenly became profitable. Pipe gas became a liability both to the pr producer and uh, to the customer. And uh, there was the rise of liquefied natural gas, uh, which gave some sense of freedom to the producer and to the consumer. Of note that uh, Amos Hochstein of the State Department was a big champion of liquefied natural gas. Uh, and we saw that in, in, there was the proposition to build a gas pipeline from Israel to Cyprus to Greece, and it was deemed too expensive. And given the uh, geopolitical changes now, the shift is definitely towards liquefied natural gas. And so there was a new opportunity uh, that the East Mediterranean gas, especially from Israel, which was expensive to liquefy and sell, became reasonable and also a, uh, a necessity for Europe. And so in June, Ursula von der Leyen came to Egypt 
and signed a major uh, uh, agreement with Egypt and Israel, whereby Israeli gas would be liquefied in Egypt and sold to Europe. Uh, this was a, a milestone in that uh, security basically uh, takes precedence to cost. And it is debatable how much gas the Mediterranean would compensate for the Russian gas. But it, it became a commodity that needs to be looked into. And Europe has shown interest in East Med gas. What followed was also very important, that East, East Med gas uh, had geopolitical risks, namely uh, the presence of Hezbollah in Lebanon. And Hezbollah in Lebanon, after the war in Ukraine, was no longer a regional power. It was an arm of Iran, which was now involved totally in the war in Europe. So Hezbollah in Lebanon was basically an extension of Iran and an extension of Russia. And so that issue needed to be dealt with. And we saw suddenly an American interest in settling the maritime border dispute between Lebanon and Israel. This has been attempted many years ago, going back to Fred Hoff 12 years ago and the parties were not very interested and the U.S. was not pushing. But now the U.S. came with a very heavy hand. And basically it forced both parties, Lebanon and Israel, to concede to an agreement that basically neutralizes Hezbollah and Lebanon. The agreement on paper gives Lebanon the right to, uh, to make use of... Uh, the gas that may or may not be in the Qana field, but it also guarantees security for the state of Israel. So in this exchange of gas for security, the Israelis for sure got security and started producing gas from the Karish field. But for the Lebanese, the prospects of gas are still very remote. Another interesting thing that we've noticed before the, uh, the war in Ukraine was a bill uh, that was championed in, uh, in the Senate by, uh, I think, Senator Marco Rubio about the East, uh, East Med Energy bill, in which the U.S. Uh, guarantees and supports uh, the, the energy in the Eastern Mediterranean by supporting Israel, Cyprus, and Greece as if there was something in the air that this gas supply from Russia or from other places was not to be taken for granted. Also of interest about the same time was the involvement of the uh, UAE in Israel. And uh, a little bit more than a year ago, uh, the UAE bought 22% of the Tamar field in Israel. And so the UAE became a direct partner in Israeli gas, which is uh, something uh, very interesting because there was an attempt to have the UAE become a, a uh, uh, part of the East Med Energy Consortium, but it was vetoed by the Palestinian delegation, apparently. 
So there became an interest by the UAE in, in, in Mediterranean gas. And also of interest is Qatar, the largest producer of liquefied natural gas in the world, uh, probably now after the United States, uh, but a major exporter, became interested in gas in Lebanon. And after the maritime deal with Israel, it, uh, it showed interest in acquiring the 20% share of the consortium that was owned by Novatech, the Russian company, which could no longer operate in, in, in Lebanon. So we've had uh, American interest that suddenly uh, put pressure on both parties to have a maritime deal that would mitigate geopolitical risk. We've had uh, the uh, UAE get interested in Israeli gas. We've had Qatar showing interest in uh, Lebanese gas. And of note, Qatar has become now a major player in the presidential en passe that we have in Lebanon. Uh, Qatar has emerged as a closer ally of the United States because of the war in Ukraine. Uh, Qatar and Jordan uh, have taken sides with, with the United States and Europe. And so it, when one looks at Qatari uh, interest in Lebanon, uh, one cannot but think of uh, the U.S. acting indirectly in Lebanon. And the, uh, the, the most obvious example is when the United States wanted to support the Lebanese army in Lebanon with cash, which the U.S. cannot do, they resorted to Qatar, which is Qatar is doing. So we have this interest in gas, which also spilled over to Turkey. And there is uh, there is a hypothesis, at least, that the issue of gas was one of the main reasons that Turkish-Israeli relations uh, got better. And in President Herzog's visit to Ankara, it was said that gas was one of the main issues that were discussed. So gas and the Eastern Mediterranean, which was not very economical and, and, and did not interest many parties is now a hot issue. Uh, and in many ways, it has accelerated uh, uh, improving diplomatic relations, whether between Israel and Egypt, or Israel and Jordan, or Israel and the UAE, in addition to the Abraham Accords, and with Turkey. Uh, how much in Lebanon are we going to benefit from this tailwind, I'm not sure. Uh, Total said it is going to start uh, preparing for uh, uh, exploration maybe sometime in early spring. But we know that will take time. And we know from, uh, from Israel and from uh, uh, Cyprus and from Egypt that uh, the time between uh, exploring for gas and actually making use of it and turning a profit is in years and, and not less than six or seven years. So Lebanon, which was hoping that gas would get it out of its economic misery uh, through this maritime deal, this hope may be 
over uh, overestimated. It may be overestimated. Uh, Syria, the issue of Syria. Syria, the Russians have taken uh, a contract over a Syrian gas exploration in Syria, but we have not seen any evidence that the Russians are interested or, or will do anything in, in Syria. Uh, one issue that uh, arose whether a pipeline from Israel to Turkey, uh, if it goes beyond the 12 mile maritime uh, sovereignty border, whether it needs approval or not, we're not sure. But the distance between Turkey and Israel is, is very short actually, compared to the pipeline that would go from Israel to uh, Cyprus to Greece. So if more gas is discovered in Israel, and it has been in North Israel, the, the, the prospect of some cooperation with Turkey uh, is not far-fetched. Now the problem for Lebanon, if we do discover gas, how do we export that gas? <laughs> we have to hook up to some channel. And because of the political situation that we cannot hook up to this East Med network. That's also another hurdle that uh, that awaits Lebanese gas if we do uh, find gas in uh, economically profitable uh, quantities. Lebanon in the past uh, was very much involved with uh, oil. In fact, between 1967 and 1975, there was a pipeline from Saudi Arabia that went through the Golan Heights and Lebanon and was a major uh, source of oil, ex Saudi oil exports to the West when the Suez Canal was closed. So Lebanon actually uh, generated lots of revenue from uh, Saudi oil being uh, transferred through Lebanese territories. After 1975, when the Suez Canal opened, uh, the line was uh, cut off. Another pipeline that we had was from Kirkuk uh, through Iraq, Syria, that bifurcated at the end to Benyas in Syria and uh, Tripoli in Lebanon. And so I think if, if uh, there is a new mood and perhaps an extension of the Abrahamic Accords. And if it is politically possible, Lebanon can still play a role as being a conduit of energy, uh, especially between Saudi Arabia and, uh, and, uh, and the West. The pipeline is there and it's relatively well preserved. Uh, so I think we, we do have some potential, but the main risk for Lebanon really is geopolitical. Uh, you know, we have hardly any electricity in Lebanon. We get an average of one hour a day. And there was an attempt by the United States about a year and a half ago upon a, a move by Jordan to open up economically to Syria uh, for Lebanon to get Egyptian gas through the Arab pipeline uh, from Egypt to Jordan, to Syria, to Lebanon, and to get electricity from Jordan. But now that Syria is an ally of Russia and Russia is at war with Europe, it has become politically impossible to have gas and electricity come to Lebanon 
from Egypt and from Jordan. So again, geopolitical risk trumps all other economic benefits and Lebanon is not going to see any gas, neither from Egypt nor electricity uh, from Jordan. Uh, Lebanon's political isolation, in fact, I think is a detriment. And uh, Lebanon has to think like it was an island whereby we have to ensure uh, our supply of everything. But in fact, if, if we do think a little bit outside the box, then Lebanon can have lots of options. You know that Turkey has uh, an excess of power generation and uh, the shoreline between Lebanon and Turkey is hardly 130 miles. It is possible that if the relations improve, that Turkey can give us a cable uh, through the Mediterranean and provide electricity at much lower cost than it would to produce electricity in Lebanon. Lebanon potentially has excess water with it, which it can share with its neighbors. So I think there was a turning point with the war in Ukraine, but I'm not sure that Lebanon is going to be part of this new movement or new trend. I think the economic benefits are gonna be reaped by other uh, nations in the Mediterranean and specifically those in the Eastern Med uh, Gas Forum that Egypt now leads. Lebanon, unfortunately, has been left out. And the fact that Lebanon is under Iranian influence through Hezbollah also is a negative uh, factor. So far, after three years, we haven't had any bids on the other uh, blocks that are out on the market. So I think we have a lot of things to do in Lebanon to improve the situation, to make Lebanon more attractive. But unless one way or the other, we become part of the East Med gas uh, forum, which is led by Egypt, it's going to be very difficult for Lebanon to make use of its natural resources, even if they prove to be available. We will have problems uh, uh, liquefying the gas, we'll have problems marketing the gas, and uh, I don't want to sound too pessimistic, but change may come. And I think uh, should the Abrahamic Accords extend uh, to Saudi Arabia and Oman possibly. And should there be a uh, change in the in the area after the uprisings in uh, in Iran, ifs, but they may come true, they may realize. And I think in that case, uh, our chances in Lebanon of uh, exploiting our natural resources and integrating into the area would be much, much uh, greater. Well, you've mentioned Egypt a number of times. Isn't it the most successful Middle Eastern country aside from Israel and meeting its domestic gas needs through its own productions? In fact, to the point now that it's in a position to also export natural gas, which it's doing. Perhaps it's the uh, political stability that Al-Sisi has given Egypt that has allowed for this kind of development. 
Short of political stability in Lebanon, and you mentioned the complicating factor of uh, Hezbollah, uh, and today you, you still don't have a, a president, or you have an acting president. Is there any prospect for political stability in Lebanon developing to the point where investors would have the confidence to, to bid on those uh, gas fields? Regarding Egypt, Egypt, I think, has been one of the quickest countries to uh, make use of, of the gas discovery in the Zohar field. I think it took them only three to four years for the gas to be made use of domestically. And Egypt needs that gas domestically. Uh, but there's no doubt that uh, the stability in Egypt has attracted uh, major players, namely Eni, the Italian company, uh, to uh, to go uh, full speed ahead in Egypt. There's no doubt that geopolitical stability is a major factor for these big companies that are not willing to risk uh, capital in areas where risk is abundant, to say the least. Uh, there's no doubt that the maritime agreement between Lebanon and Israel has uh, mitigated geopolitical risks to a large extent. A large extent. But we still have lots to do domestically. What Lebanon needs to do in terms of fighting corruption, passing legislation so we can get aid from the IMF and the World Bank, uh, so we can uh, uh, resuscitate our banking sector. Uh, a lot of things have not been done, and uh, uh, the international community is. It's been disappointed with the slow pace of reform. Reform in Lebanon has been very, very slow. And it's been hampered by a complicated political process. And this complication is partly because the elections in Lebanon produced a stalemate in parliament with no clear majority that can produce a president. And we've had that in the past uh, and we've gone for almost two years without a, electing a president. The last time around, uh, it was the JCPOA and the Iranian-American agreement that facilitated an Iranian-American agreement in Lebanon that produced the, uh, the president, uh, our ex-president, who was an ally of Hezbollah, effectively. He is an ally of Hezbollah. And his election was the result of some external agreement. And so the Lebanese now are in this domestic stalemate are waiting for some international agreement uh, to, to, to facilitate the process. But until then, we don't have a president. Uh, we have a government that uh, is a caretaker government. And uh, I think that's not a good recipe to attract uh, international uh, uh, companies that want to invest in Lebanon. What do you make of the turn of events uh, when Hezbollah was threatening to attack Israeli exploration or gas producing uh, facilities in the Eastern Mediterranean if they began to produce short of this uh, line of agreement, uh, but then supported the 
uh, agreement when it was reached. <laughs> what do you think of Hezbollah's role in that? And and very why, few people. Very did, few people. Yeah, sorry. No, I'm sorry. Well, why did it find it in its interest to agree to the agreement, to support the agreement? Hezbollah, there's no doubt, was uh, a, a partner in the negotiations. Main negotiating partner was Hezbollah. And there's no doubt that the agreement was done with the agreement of Hezbollah. Why would Hezbollah want this agreement? One has to look further than Hezbollah to Iran. And uh, this is, uh, Iran leaves a lot of domestic issues to Hezbollah, but when it comes to uh, issues relating to the regional uh, area, that, that it's Iran that makes those decisions. And so Iran felt it was a good time to have this agreement. And it's of interest that a few days later, the Qadhimi was removed in Iraq and was replaced by a prime minister who is pro-Iranian. <laughs> and I, I will tell you that People here were saying it was a quid pro quo mm. that Iran gave up something in Lebanon and picked up something else in Iraq. And besides, Hezbollah is, needs something domestically to show that it, it, it wants to create a, a regional calm that is conducive to making use of, of Lebanese gas. And at that point in time, they had no interest in continuing uh, this confrontation with Israel. Uh, but there's no doubt that this agreement was done with the, uh, with the approval of Hezbollah. Even though the agreement is uh, interpreted by some as a tacit recognition by Lebanon of Israel. It is not a tacit recognition. It's an open recognition. And in 27 times, uh, 27 times in the in the document, it, it, the, the state of Israel is mentioned as the state of Israel, not the Zionist entity or whatever Hezbollah calls it. And it was a little embarrassing, I think, for Hassan Nasrallah, uh, so much so that he had to come up and uh, explain to his followers how come there's no recognition of Israel when Israel was mentioned 27 times in the agreement. Uh, everybody knows that, that this is an, an agreement with Israel and uh, a lot of uh, people think it was, uh, it introduced it, 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 it some normalization, some normalization. May not go a long way, but it is the beginning of normalization of relations, whereby even Hezbollah deals with Israel as a state, which is which was something new to Hezbollah. So there is something there, but more importantly, the border issue was resolved. The agreement stipulates that the border issue would not be an area of contention at any time. And if it is, then it would be the United States who would resolve that issue and not other agent, any other agency. So it the, the agreement is not a... Uh, if, it's way, way it's far from being a normalization with Israel, 
but it, it, to have a, a border delineated between Lebanon and Israel is something very, very important. Dr. Shab, you, you've indicated uh, right up at the top that uh, this renewed interest in Eastern Mediterranean gas was occasioned by a geopolitical factor. That was the war in Ukraine. And of course, Europe's uh, losing its major gas supplier, cheap gas from Russia, which runs its industries and heats its homes. So now with the effective gas shut off, the destruction of three of the four uh, Nord Stream pipelines, mm -hmm. there seems to be a political determination in Europe to leave its dependency on Russia behind it. But what happens when peace comes in the Ukraine war? And particularly what happens if there's a, well, not necessarily a regime change in, in Russia, but if there's a change of the head of state and, and Putin goes. Mm. Mightn't Europe then find the excuse to get back in bed with its major gas supplier in Russia? And, and therefore, that would deflate the geopolitical interest in that Eastern Mediterranean gas. Is that a danger? I don't think so. I think Russia has lost Europe as a uh, customer. Uh, and I think many others are uh, moving in quickly to fill uh, the space, uh, starting with other Bijan and uh, other countries. and. Uh, but I think the trend in moving to liquefied natural gas is not reversible. I think the world has moved on to gas and even to liquefied natural gas. I mean, it's so, so, so much so that the Chinese were buying cheap Russian gas, liquefying it and selling it back to Europe. I mean, it's just, uh, <laughs> so I think the world has moved on past gas and pipelines. The world has moved on to liquefied natural gas, and that is not reversible. I don't think the world is going to go back. Russia knows that, and they have a, a plant in Yamal. They have a, a big liquefied natural gas plant in the north, and they're accelerating it so they can get on the bandwagon. But in this bandwagon, you have the United States, Qatar, Australia, and Malaysia, the top four. And uh, effectively, America controls the liquefied natural gas market of the world, uh, which leaves uh, Russia now in a very secondary role. Uh, and this change to liquefied natural gas away from oil has also had its impact on, on, on the Middle East. Saudi Arabia, which was the the main energy producer uh, and with the relations with the U.S. not doing that well uh, has now become maybe uh, number two on the block. Number one is Qatar. Qatar, Jordan, Morocco and Tunisia supported the U.S. in, in, in Ukraine and uh, Recently, we saw that Qatar uh, provided or 
committed to provide natural gas to Europe, to Germany and others. And so this, and these are long-term contracts and it's gonna be very difficult for the Russians to come back in with short-term contracts. I think the, the aftermath of the war in Ukraine on Russia when peace comes, whenever it comes, is going to be even worse than it is today. And we're beginning to see the price of oil coming down. We're seeing the price of net, of gas coming down. Russia will have to send, uh, sell its uh, uh, hydrocarbons in less quantities at huge discounts to fewer customers. Uh, and the liquefied natural gas has changed the political balance in many areas. Egypt has become a very important strategic hub for the United States. Qatar, which was uh, playing second fiddle to Saudi Arabia, now is really acting like a, a world power in energy. Uh, and we see this in Lebanon, actually, how the Qataris are being very active in uh, Lebanese politics and in a way taking the place of Saudi Arabia. So I think the aftermath of Qatar, of the of the war in Ukraine, is going to be uh, apparent long after peace settles in, in, in Europe. But the most important thing maybe is the decline of Russia. Yeah, with Russia losing in Ukraine, what's going to happen to the Russians in, in the Middle East, in Syria? Syria was the main reason that Russia entered the world stage as a superpower. And after Russia exits the world stage as a superpower in Ukraine, what is going to happen to Russia and Syria? Will Bashar al-Assad look for other sponsors after the Russians can't support him with money or fuel? Or We know that the economic situation in Lebanon is bad, but it's far worse in Syria. Far worse in terms of uh, energy costs, food, you name it. And so... Can Syria still keep its grip on Russia, keep its grip on Syria like it did before? We saw the Turks uh, dealing with Russia in a different manner. Uh, the Turks uh, are behaving with the Russians in a more, uh, in a more uh, arrogant manner, if you wish. We've seen the Armenians refusing to sign a uh, common communique with the Russians. We've seen Kazakhstan refusing to uh, uh, maintain Russian aircraft or refuel Russian aircraft. So I think the, the downhill course of Russia is going to continue after the war ends in Ukraine. And we may see a shift here. We may see a shift here. Uh, I, home, I, home Syria always have Iran. Well, Iran is... Iran was hoping for a JCPOA that would open up two, three million barrels of oil a day. And that has not happened. And Iran is, is selling oil at a discount. And now Iran is selling oil to India and China and finds that the Russians are competing with it for its customers. And you have you, the, the, the turmoil, the revolution, if you wish, in Iran is starting to have some effect. Uh, there was uh, this Bazij officer meeting with uh, 
university students in Iran. And one of them said, we're having a hell of a time. And how come you're sending uh, free uh, fuel and oil to Lebanon? And the Baziz officer said, no, we're not. We're going to sell it to them. Uh, and so the idea that Iran could become overextended with this uh, economic situation, internal turmoil, is also questionable. And so I think we're we're truly at a at a turning point. We're truly at a turning point, not only in energy, but also in politics. And now that you mention it, who wants to buy Russian weapons? The Egyptians gave up on the Sohoi 35s. Even the Algerians gave up on the Sohoi 35s, which the uh, the Russians gave to the Iranians in exchange for these suicide drones. So. Russia lost its its arms market, and Russia is not going to do well with its energy market. Uh, and are these things going to affect us in the Middle East? Yes, I think they would. Well, it, it, some say that Russia has not suffered in, in in the oil market, and that it's done actually rather well in selling its oil, and oil is. I believe a far more fungible commodity than is natural gas. Would you agree with that? That would be. Well, I, I think I think the numbers uh, are correct, but the numbers were based on when oil was up to a hundred dollars, uh, and uh, oil uh, is now much lower than that. And it is said that the Russians are selling their oil at a discount. Uh, and so I think the Russians are going to have a hard time selling their oil and they're going to have a hard time uh, uh, getting much out of it. I think already there are indications that in the last quarter, uh, Russian oil uh, exports have maybe come down a little bit and the revenue has come down. Uh, so I'm, I'm not so sure that the Russians are going to continue to do economically well. Um, well, but my but also, sorry, doctor, go ahead. But also, they lost their arms market. You know, the second uh, source of income for Russia after oil is the arms industry. And I think they've lost that. They've lost that. Well, as you know, India was uh, for many, many years one of the biggest purchasers of uh, Russian arms. I don't know whether that has changed as it has increased its purchase of. Russian oil. Uh, India has been moving slowly towards the United States. Uh, uh, you know, the India has bought uh, uh, the, the P-8, uh, the maritime patrol aircraft. They've bought the helicopters. Uh, they're thinking of buying the F-18 for their new aircraft carrier. And the Indians are worried that Russia now being weak cannot act as a buffer vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Should India have a conflict with China, the Russians are not going to be neutral. They are too weak to be neutral. And I, 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 and I think it's, if you look at the relations between uh, India and Taiwan, they see that these relations are warming up. And so I don't think you can put India in the place that vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia, in the place that it was several years ago. Uh, India is, is, is moving away. And I think uh, India seeing Russia 
weakened by this war knows that China has the uh, the upper hand and the final say in this uh, relationship, historic relationship between India and Russia may be not as strong as it used to be. Um, it, regardless, it does seem that Russia has been able to still, to still move its oil, even if it, it was yes. perhaps at a discount. But it, it's very harder to imagine uh, how it's going to replace Europe as a major gas consumer because it, I don't believe it has uh, sufficient pipeline access to China to move natural gas in those quantities. Uh, and that there, really there's no way for, for Russia to make that up. Concomitantly, it seems very hard for Europe to make up the shortage it now suffers in Russia gas. You mentioned Qatar, the long-term Qatari agreement, but that's just a tiny percentage of the gas Europe used to get from Russia. Uh, there, there will need to be uh, far more supplies. And people say that uh, Europe, Germany is going hell bent in its development for renewable energy uh, in order that it, it, fossil fuels will diminish in its future. I, I don't know how quickly that could happen. I think people may be a little overly optimistic about it. But it's still um, uh, curious. Germany, as you know, did fill its gas storage tanks for this winter. Mm -hmm. But people are worried about next winter. Even though the, the price of natural gas has come down, China uh, is opening up again uh, because it's changed in COVID policy. So its demand for resources is going to rise. Uh, what, so that exactly explains uh, the phenomenon you've been describing of this increased interest in uh, Eastern Mediterranean gas, whether it's Egyptian, Israeli, or, or uh, Cypriot. Uh, it's the pace of development, the future of geopolitical stability in the area, and the amount that uh, the exploration and development uh, corporations would be willing to invest to develop it, and then and then becomes the good the big question of how to move it. Now you mentioned LNG, uh, which is expensive, uh, and an open market uh, in which prices can fluctuate fairly wildly. Uh, so, so some kind of price stability also would seem to be required for the kind of long-term investment that the development of those gas fields, plus the pipelines or the LNG uh, facilities uh, uh, to, for them to be created to do this. So what kind of timeline will we, would we be looking at there? It seems the timeline is being very much compressed that Germany has finished a, an LNG terminal in record time. And I think they have several more that are going to come on board in the next uh, few months. Uh, the U.S. has moved to become really the number one uh, LNG exporter in the world. 
And to think that one of the main companies, one of the companies, Chenier, for example, which many years ago was uh, a company to receive LNG, is now an exporter of LNG. And the, 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 the war has made the U.S. a superpower in LNG. And if there were enough terminals in Europe, uh, there's enough LNG to, to support Europe. The, the, the rate limiting, I'm not an, an expert in the technical issues, but the rate limiting, limiting step is the, the, the LNG uh, the ports to receive uh, these shipments. Uh, and also there's an accelerated uh, move for renewables uh, and uh, nuclear power. I think there's gonna be a discussion on nuclear power. Germany has kept the three nuclear power plants open. So will Europe uh, do well this winter? Yes, yes. This idea that uh, the Russians would weaponize energy against Europe and against the transatlantic uh, alliance is, is going to fail, and it has failed. Uh, is Europe looking for other venues? Yes, the East Mediterranean is one of them. It is uh, a small... Uh, source compared to the US and Qatar. Uh, Qatar usually, the, their customers were in Asia, not in Europe. And so this is a new field for Qatar. Qatar just uh, um, decided on a plan to boost their production uh, by about 70 to 80%. Uh, and so Qatar is trying to keep up with, with demand in a short period of time. Uh, and develop whatever fields it has at 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 a, at a at an alarming rate, actually. Uh, so I think the the view is 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 positive, not negative, that uh, the suppliers would have, uh, in a compressed time, accommodate the market. Do you believe that it is the energy issue and the uh, liquefied natural gas issue that may have changed the attitude toward Qatar, along with the World Cup maybe, uh, when just a short time ago, there was the attempt to uh, cut uh, Qatar's off with relations with Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and so forth. A diplomatic embargo, which is, is now pretty much uh, dissipated. Uh, mainly because of Qatari support of radical Islam and its support for the forces of radical Islam. And uh, I mean, I, I remember so well when I was in the Middle East in 2003, uh, watching Al Jazeera, as it reported mm -hmm. on Iraq, it was a highly destabilizing influence. And uh, it has been characterized as the Muslim Brotherhood television station. And that, as you know, is supported by the ruler of Qatar. It is true. There is a change towards uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in the Middle East. And even Turkey has distanced itself from the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which allowed for rapprochement with Egypt and allowed for rapprochement with other countries. So there is a change, and, and that change is also in Qatar to some extent. But I think what what puts Qatar aside, Qatar and Jordan in particular, in that in the war in Ukraine, they were not on the fence. 
Qatar and Jordan stood by the United States and Europe. Uh, Jordan sending ammunition, whatever it could, and Qatar uh, uh, supplying gas where it was needed. And even Jazeera, you mentioned Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera has quite a bit of coverage on the Ukraine war, and it is biased towards Ukraine. Whereas UAE, they're voting in the Security Council and the Saudi Arabians with the, their neutral policy with Russia and the, the, the cutting production and the Chinese summit. This has put Qatar on a different, uh, on a different scale vis-a-vis -vis the United States and the West. Uh, and so, yes, they've supported uh, radical Islam, but on the, in, in the war that's facing Europe and the West, Qatar stood on the right side of history, if you wish. Can we talk a little more about the, the role of Turkey here? Uh, Turkey will not rec recognize the um, exclusive economic zones of some of its neighbors, uh, pointedly Greece and uh, Cyprus. While it did reach an agreement uh, with Libya on a maritime border, uh, this certainly compromises the ability of the Cypriots to develop their oil fields. I believe uh, on occasion, Turkey has even sent a warship to prevent such exploration yes so is it correct to say turkey has turned into an energy hub and uh that first of all can can agreement be reached with it on these still volatile issues and uh, can, can it along with egypt be be an energy hub through which uh these enormous gas fines in the Eastern Mediterranean can be sent to Europe. And Turkey has a problem in that it, its extended economic zone is very, very limited because of the Greek islands. So their only area that is reasonable is north of Cyprus. But so far this area has not been shown to have much gas in it. And so Turkey has moved its attention to uh, to other areas, to the Black Sea, and uh, to be a conduit from Azerbaijan and from Kurdistan. Uh, Kurdistan, uh, the pipeline goes to Jihan, and uh, Turkey until now is a conduit of energy. Uh, if Israeli gas goes to Turkey, then it can easily connect to the European network. And there is a change also in Turkish policy that has become more pragmatic. It seems that Erdogan has sort of lessened his Islamic credentials and moved to a more nationalistic uh, attitude, if you wish, uh, before the 2023 elections. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, the US has some influence over Turkey. Turkey threatened to move into Syria and uh, the US uh, did not approve. And at the end of the day, the Turks did not move in to extend their uh, security zone in Syria. Uh, 
so Turkey is not an energy hub so far. Uh, Turkey is unlikely to be self-sufficient in energy. Oh, I didn't mean Turkey, so much in, in production of it, it's the transit of it. The transit of it, and yes, the transit of it. Yes, that's what I Yes. Uh, and so far, there's not much evidence of gas in North Cyprus. And apparently, this deal between Libya and Tripoli uh, has been put aside uh, in order to improve relations with Egypt. So Turkey is probably now, for the next uh, few months, is going to be looking internally and Erdogan preparing himself for uh, elections in Turkey. Uh, and it's not sure that he's going to, uh, the results are not predictable. And the Kurdish vote is a considerable vote in Turkey. And any activity in, in, in Syria would uh, bring him closer to the nationalists, but would bring him further apart from the Kurdish vote in Turkey. So I, but interesting that this rapprochement with Israel was, uh, let's say, accelerated by the events in Europe. Um, it's, I, I read one rather uh, interesting remark uh, about uh, Turkey being the conduit for a great deal of natural gas supplies to Europe that uh, Europe would not want to find itself dependent on Turkey uh, as a conduit for those supplies because it's learned its lesson from having become so dependent upon Russia. Mm -hmm. And therefore a diversification of supplies is in its interest and pipelines to Italy are far more attractive than, than ones uh, to Turkey or through Turkey. But then again, it's a matter of expense of, of uh, expanding or developing those undersea pipelines. Um, is it, does, do you think that's accurate, the reflection of some of the thinking? I think that is uh, accurate. The, the, the pipeline from Israel to Cyprus to Greece uh, to uh, Europe has been um, put aside because of cost and because of LNG taking over. Uh, but what if Greece, Greece also seems to have a large supply of hydrocarbons and these could be easily uh, sent to Italy you know, through a pipeline. So I think we have to wait to see what the Eastern Mediterranean uncovers in time. But I think there's more gas and, uh, and the hydrocarbons in the Eastern Mediterranean than what, uh, what people think. Uh, and I do hope that in this uh, rush to sell gas to Europe and develop gas, that Lebanon would overcome its geopolitical and domestic hurdles so we can be on the bandwagon. Well, it's, in can... it, it's interesting that the leader of he Hezbollah, Nasrallah, made the statement that the future of Lebanon is China. Yes, yes, yes. It's interesting that uh, he said he, he is he is against the, uh, the any deal with the IMF or the World Bank. 
There's no doubt that part of Hezbollah's uh, plan is to dissociate Lebanon uh, from the West and mostly financially, mostly financially. And so the, the banking crisis in Lebanon does serve Hezbollah in, in many ways. The interesting thing is Hezbollah may be interested in the Chinese, but the Chinese don't seem to be interested in Lebanon. <laughs> the Chinese don't seem to be interested in Lebanon. Uh, the, the Chinese ambassador in, in Lebanon is unheard uh, to do any activity. Uh, and uh, China is becoming one of the leading trading partners of Lebanon, if not the first. So China and Lebanon is behaving like a company. They sell products and they're not interested in getting involved in politics as long as, as they're a good, number one trading partner. China is not interested in politics in Lebanon. And I think Hassan Nasrallah said that as a reflection of the Iranian uh, Chinese strategic plan. Maybe, that's, think, why, yeah. maybe mm -hmm. that's why China is not uh, interested uh, politically in Lebanon because it's deferring to Iran, which is a big supplier of uh, energy to China or assigned long-term contracts with China. Is that possible? Uh, true? And also, that, that's possible. And also the Chinese uh, feel that to leave that space to Russians, the Russians have uh, uh, have uh, signed a lease on uh, uh, fuel tanks in North Lebanon. The Russians, for a while, showed interest in the Greek Orthodox community. The Russians uh, gave the Lebanese army a hundred trucks, and so I think the the Chinese didn't want to step on the toes of others in Lebanon. But I wonder what Hassan Nasrallah would think after the meeting uh, with Saudi Arabia, the Chinese meeting with the Saudis. Hmm? Wow, I mean, uh, if China had to choose between the GCC and Iran, surely they would choose the GCC. Uh, so the Iranians were not very happy. And, uh, you know, they called the Chinese ambassador to protest the final communique, which stated that the three islands uh, where uh, UAE islands belong to the UAE. Uh, so I, we'll see. The Chinese like water. They go where the resistance is least. And uh, now it seems to be heading towards Saudi Arabia. Could we close with a reflection from you as a very experienced Lebanese legislator on the condition of your own country. Has the spiral downward been arrested? If not, what could arrest it? And what, uh, what, what forces are there coalescing for a recovery uh, and a rebuilding of what was once this jewel of the Mediterranean? Well, one can single out individual factors and say, well, it's corruption or it's Hezbollah or it's uh, this or it's that. But what I see as the main problem is Lebanon's 
slow, deliberate drift away from the West. It's going to be very difficult for Lebanon to uh, to regain its uh, position, uh, either culturally or financially or economically, unless it's part of this of the West GCC alliance of sorts. Lebanon has drifted away from the Arab Gulf. Hezbollah has alienated the Saudis and everybody else. And then we've alienated the West. And uh, now that we have little strategic interest, uh, little uh, political interest in Lebanon, at least we can maintain some cultural interest in Lebanon. And that's the only thing that's still hanging in there. We have good institutions. Uh, we have good universities. We have good American universities. We still have partially a liberal educational system. And we have an army. And it's not a surprise that the bulk of US aid to Lebanon and Western aid is to support uh, institutions of liberal education and the Lebanese army. But until there is a tilt in the country towards the West, it's going to be very difficult to, uh, to achieve much. Well, the prerequisite for that would seem to be escaping from the grips of Hezbollah. And uh, whereas the Lebanese army for so many years stood as a guarantor uh, for Lebanese independence and uh, integrity, it seems that it more or less is under the thumb of Hezbollah rather than functioning as a national army anymore. Is that is that too grim an assessment? Yeah, it is actually. I think the Lebanese army has uh, some independence. Uh, the Lebanese army has a role to play in security and stability. But uh, being in Lebanon with Hezbollah, they will have to collude with Hezbollah and reach an understanding, which is understandable. And I think the US administration understands that. Uh, but in answer to your question, uh, yes, uh, as things are, the possibility of change in Lebanon is not great. But, but, uh, change in Lebanon has come uh, as a uh, consequence of geopolitical shifts in the Middle East. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, the Syrians pull out of Lebanon. Uh, we've seen Israel withdraw from Lebanon. Uh, and now we have Iranian influence in Lebanon. Should there be a change in Iran, that would reflect on us. Uh, should the uh, Russian presence in Syria weaken, and therefore weakening Iranian presence, that would reflect on us. And should the Abrahamic Accords, uh, like I said, extend to Saudi Arabia or Oman, then that would change things. But I do not expect change to come from inside Lebanon. I cannot see uh, what we Lebanese can do at this point under tremendous Iranian influence to do, to, to change this situation. I don't think elections can make a difference, even 
we've had elections and we saw it didn't make a difference. We can elect a new president and we can go by the constitution. But unless a geopolitical uh, shift happens, uh, then we're not gonna, we're gonna be in the same situation. And I, I dare say that the JCPOA did not reflect kindly on us. The JCPOA did not reflect kindly on Lebanon because it, uh, it gave Iran uh, more influence in Lebanon. And that's a fact. So even if we wanted to do whatever we could, and there was a, a, an agreement with the United States that gave Iran more leeway in Lebanon, then what could we do as legislators? Not much. But I, I, I don't want to sound uh, too pessimistic, so I'm going to end on an optimistic note. And I think what we've, the, 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 the Ukraine is going to be a point of inflection, and not only in energy, but also in politics. And when it happens, when it happens, uh, a lot of things are going to change. And I wouldn't exclude Iranian influence in Lebanon being one of them. Let me sneak, sneak in one last question. What's your assessment of the role of U.S. foreign policy regarding Lebanon and the region? Uh, and of course, it played a major role in fathering in the Abrahamic Accords. Uh, has that changed under... President Biden, or how do you assess the effect of U.S. foreign policy currently? I would say that America's policy in Lebanon is reasonable, reasonable to, to invest where you think investment pays off. And that's in, uh, in, in social, pro social uh, uh, projects, NGOs, universities, education, and the Lebanese army. So I cannot be critical of that. Uh, I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, one thing uh, that has changed is that in many ways, Lebanon has become a fault line between the US and Russia. You know, we, have, we have American presence in Lebanon uh, and uh, very close to Russian presence. The largest uh, naval base outside Russia is uh, 20 miles from the Lebanese border. So this continued interest in Lebanon uh, was partly to train the Lebanese army to fight ISIS, to counter Hezbollah, but to some degree, it's also uh, to counter Russian influence in Syria. Lebanon has become a fourth line. So I, I, I think the policy is prudent. It's, uh, it's a continuation, actually, of the previous policy. I can't say it changed much from uh, President Trump's time. Uh, and I think it until there are new parameters in the area, this policy is not going to change. Well, great. I'm afraid we're out of uh, time right now, but I would like to thank our guests from Lebanon. Dr. Vassam Sheb, for joining me today to discuss energy issues in the Eastern Mediterranean, particularly in light of the war in Ukraine. I invite our audience to go to the Westminster Institute website and to our YouTube channel 
where you'll see our other offerings and publications, uh, programs, a number of them on the Russia-Ukraine war, on China, Taiwan, Japan, and other issues in the Middle East. Thank you for joining us. I'm Robert Riley.